Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang is a businessman and author. He is known for his presidential bid in 2020 and his bid for New York City mayor in 2021. This podcast was recorded at Andrew's studio and jointly released on his podcast, which is called Forward. Topics we cover include my upbringing and background in music, how philosophy is taught, why race shouldn't matter, the Democrats' use of identity politics, office culture, the future of work, automation, and AI. So without further ado, Andrew Yang. This week on Ford, it is my pleasure to welcome philosopher, rock star, uh, one of, in my mind, one of the most uh, interesting modern-day intellectuals of our era. Coleman Hughes. Welcome, Coleman. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I am so pumped to have you here, and I think this might be a, a, a crossover episode, so I, I might be showing up on your Yeah, so too. welcome to Conversations with Coleman. Yes, look at this. It's the Yang-Coleman crossover that the world has been wanting. Demanding. For, <laughs> yes. For we years. Couldn't, we, we couldn't uh, put off the masses any longer. Yeah. Uh, so, so pumped to meet you. Uh, I feel like I've known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, likewise, yeah. Yeah, so on, on my side, what happened was there was this gathering of folks I think that you and I are friendly with. It was like uh, Sam Harris, um, uh, some other folks got together, and like you were there too. Uh, and I was like, ooh, who's this guy? Oh, you know, that's right, the whole thing that never happened. Yes. That, that whole event that never happened? Yeah, that's what I, it was. That The Pangburn philosophy event that was like, uh, it was like the intellectual equivalent of the fire Festival. It was like the Lollapalooza of... Thinkers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder who would be Perry Farrell in that one. Maybe Sam. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I I, I uh, thought to myself, like, wow, uh, Coleman's really impressive. Um, and so I've been trying to keep up with your work since then mm-hmm. in some ways. But more recently, you hit the radar in a huge way when you became a legitimate rock star. You came out with, like, a music video right. um, that, that I thought was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I... I remember, I do remember we were going to do that event and I was following you. I heard you on Sam Harris's podcast years ago and, and then you ran for president and you were, I think probably as much or more than any other candidate aligned with what I wanted to see. And then you ran for mayor and I was rooting for you there as a New Yorker. And, uh, you know, like as someone who, I'm not a registered Democrat or a Republican. You know, I've always felt a genuine kind of centrist politics, a moderation about me that's, you know, sometimes people you do will criticize. Like a moderate fellow. <laughs> I'm a pretty moderate fellow. I mean, depends depends when you catch me. But well, you know what, the, what one of the things and we can discuss this too is that you can have big visions for things that need to change. Um, and be moderate in either temperament or approach or mm-hmm. language. Right. Like, right. I, I still think, for example, we should give everyone some money, right. <laughs> which, which some people regard as— As a radical idea. Yes. Right. I, I see it as very reasonable and mm-hmm. uh, and, and moderate. Um, but I, I'd love to get into your origin story for people because yeah, there are sure. a lot of people that uh, want to be philosophers mm-hmm. and— 
aren't. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe they are. Um, I'll actually confess my, my story, too, and you might and I share some things in common. So I, I went to uh, prep school and college in New England, um, and there was a point when I was a bit of a philosophy buff or a wannabe philosophy mm-hmm. buff. So mm-hmm. I did, I'm, I, like, there are probably some people listening to this who resemble this. So I took an intro to philosophy class uh, in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow, was it not what I thought it was going to be? Like I ended up being, um, kind of shell shocked or blown out of the water in terms of like the nature of the stuff we were reading. And mm-hmm. I, I confess that was like my first and last philosophy. Mm. <laughs> Wait, what, what was it about the class that shocked? Well, you know, I, I thought it was going to be, um, closer to some stuff. I, so I, I'd taken an existentialism class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I thought that the philosophy class was going to be like that, but yeah. maybe because the intro to philosophy class went like further back in time, it wasn't reading like Greek philosophers or any of that jazz. Uh, it was like steps earlier than that. I don't know if maybe that was, just it was, it was earlier than the Greeks. Yeah, it was, or it was like, it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it was much more. What's earlier than the Greeks? Or seriously, uh, Sumerians? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the Hammurabi codes. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I just remember being put off by it, and so mm-hmm. that, that was like my dalliance with, yeah, uh, with philosophy and culture. I did study political science, which ends up intersecting with it, so mm-hmm. that that brought in the Mills, Hobbes, right, uh, in, like. Uh, those thinkers that ended up influencing, you know, the social contract law, mm-hmm, the rest mm-hmm. of it. My background in philosophy started, I suppose, when I was 17. I took a philosophy class in high school, and I clearly had a knack for it, but I had no concept that that would be my college major. At that time, I was a musician through and through. I was, like, mentally done with school. Just So you grew up? I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is like a 30-minute drive outside the city, as in New York City. And I have two sisters, uh, you know, two parents, grew up in a beautiful, uh, diverse, and and well-off suburb. And as a kid, I was always very good at school. I, I was, uh, I got very good grades and... Uh, I enjoyed getting good grades. And really the the feature of my identity that evolved most intensely was music. So what was your instrument? So I played violin when I was three, and I was okay. I, I, was, I was sort of better than average, but nothing to write home about. And I did this Suzuki method, which a lot of kids do. And I started piano at five till I was about 12. I, yeah. I went... Uh, I went until college, I, oh, yeah. I played piano for, I suppose I yeah. took instruction for 12 years, but continue. Yeah, like classical? Yep. Yep. I had a, I had a Puerto Rican tiger mom. So I, I was, I was uh, violin, piano. Violin pretty intense. Piano yeah, it is. Intense. Yeah. Uh, drums at seven or eight, which I was the best of all three at. And my school, uh, the, my, my, the public school I went to in Montclair, Hillside, from third to fifth grade had, had this thing called Drums of Thunder which was a drum line of 10 and 11-year-olds that would do pieces almost like, do you remember that uh, that movie, I think it's called Drumline, from like oh, yeah, sure. 15 Nick years Cannon, ago right? with Nick Cannon? Yeah. So we did that stuff as 10 and 11-year-olds, and we were so good that we would perform halftime for the New York Giants, the New I York Knicks, the New York Jets. You've seen, you've seen Drums of Thunder. Yeah, it's called Drums of Thunder. 
and it's like parents go crazy for it because like you're so cute, but it's also like good. Yes, had Drumline come out at that time? Something just fell behind you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember what your Drumline was. Was this contemporaneous with your being uh, in Drums of Thunder? Was what? Uh, was the movie? What? I think you predated. When did? Pre-dated when the was? Movie? <laughs> I think it might have been after the movie. When was that movie? Yeah, well, that was like early two thousand. Producer, date of drumline. Jamie, do you have a Jamie? Here? His name's James. That's so close. Oh, enough. okay, okay. Yeah, so I was in Drums of Thunder. That was really my first taste of music performance. It was like insane. Like I was ten years old, and LeBron James just walked right past me as I walked onto half court at the Washington Wizards or something. Yeah, and we played and. The way that group was run by the, there's this charismatic director named Vinny D'Amico, and he would run it like a sort of mock army. He would have us do like 10 hut type things with the sticks, and it was like this discipline exercise that we really enjoyed. And the parents obviously loved it because like we were all cute and like doing cute yet disciplined. Cute yet disciplined. Yeah, Yeah. it 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 was just an incredible experience. But he ran it on like a military structure. So the best drummer would audition for the role of commander. And I got the commander of the group in wow. fifth grade. So I was, I was, I had talent for, for drumming. Yeah. And then I went from sixth grade, I went to a private school called Newark Academy in Livingston, New Jersey, which had a really nice orchestra. And I started playing in the orchestra, got fed up with playing the drums because in, in a orchestra, what boring. the drums is, you just count like four hundred bars of rest, <laughs> and then you have one note, and then it's boring, another. And you have to unleash yeah. the drummer within. Yeah, exactly. So that's when I started playing trombone in sixth grade, and I ended up getting really good at trombone to the point that I was, you know, at seventeen or eighteen, considered one of the best jazz trombonists my age in the country. So I, I, I auditioned for Juilliard out of high school. And they took three people, and I was one of those three. Wow. So did you go? I did, yeah. I went to Juilliard for about five months, maybe. Wow. And then I dropped out. Um, well, so this is fascinating. So you're getting really good grades. You're yeah. also something of a jazz prodigy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you must have had a very big choice to make. Is like, am I going to be a professional musician or am I going to go to like a school and then play music on the side? Is that no easy choice? Super easy choice. I was like music. Wow. Soul deep. So you went to Juilliard for five months Mm -hmm. and how was that? Uh, You know, as far as music schools go, it's one of the best. So I really, I have nothing bad to say about it. And the, the people, my friends there remain some of my best friends to this day. But music school in general, I found, was not really for me. It was also a time of great turmoil in my life because my mother was dying. Oh, no. And she had cancer. And so I was really, I was suffering through watching her die and asking questions like, you know, what is it, what is the point of anything if you can just die of cancer at 55, um, you know, seemingly randomly? And, you know, I, I, that really shook a lot of assumptions I made about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was very depressed and grieving. So she died in, in February of my freshman year at Juilliard. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I dropped out, began really reevaluating what I wanted to do with my life. 
I was also seeing that the kind of gigs I would have to take in order to make it as a professional trombone player, basically you have to take every gig, right? There's like, and a lot of those gigs are grueling and they suck and they don't pay that much. And so I was seeing my future and it didn't look all that bright. It felt like I could probably do music on the side if I wanted to, but also pursue something else if I stayed in New York. And, and so I was reading a lot at that time, dealing with the loss of my mother. And I wanted to do, I wanted to, I felt it would make more sense to do a college degree where I could ask the kind of big questions I was obsessing over as a contemplative person but also stay in New York and be able to do music to my heart's content. And so I dropped out of Juilliard and reapplied to Columbia, where I had also applied out of high school. I figured I'd get in again if I got in the first time. I did. And then I went to Columbia uh, and did philosophy because it was the only subject where you can ask the big questions like, what is the meaning of life? Uh, without being ridiculed or told that they're irrelevant or not sufficiently rigorous or all the rest. Wow. Uh, well, I'm so sorry for your, your family's... Well, I didn't know this about your, uh, your history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you transferred to Columbia, studied philosophy, uh, and you started receiving public notice pretty quickly, I mm-hmm. want to say. I think you might still have been a student. Yeah, yeah. I think I was a sophomore. Yeah, I was a sophomore at Columbia. Late in my sophomore year, I started pitching. Well, the kind of the whole time I'd been pitching articles to places and trying to write for the campus newspaper, um, sometimes successfully, um, usually getting rejected. Uh, but Rejected because? Because the, the range of acceptable opinions at the Columbia Spectator is like this. So it's like most New York Times op-eds would be too right-wing for the Columbia Spectator. Because you had divergent views. Okay. Yes. Continue. Eventually, I, I my friend Christian uh, C- Christian Gonzalez. Well, actually, I was reading Quillette at the time, and I saw an article about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X examining both of their legacies, and I thought it was really good. And it was written by this guy Christian Gonzalez. So I looked him up, and he went to Columbia. And then we became best friends, and he's oh, wow. like one of my best friends to this day. Fantastic. But then that gave me the idea, well, if this guy can write for Quillette, what's stopping me? Nothing. Like, we're like the same. Sure. So I started pitching to Quillette. My, my articles went viral, as, at least as much as Quillette articles go viral. So I developed a following on Quillette, which led to me going on Sam Harris's podcast, Dave Rubin's podcast, and then eventually starting my own podcast. So you were writing as a college uh, sophomore, junior, and then... Sophomore, junior, yep, and senior. I was writing throughout that whole period for, for various outlets. Uh, and you gained some notice. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it uh, strikes me that your takes were probably, again, somewhat divergent from uh, the those of the people around you. Was there mm-hmm. any, like, uh, issue? Did people, anyone um, take issue with your perspectives on campus? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not a very aggressive or confrontational guy. So one-on-one, I could have a conversation with anyone who disagrees with me, and it almost never 
gets hostile because I listen by default and I'm curious about disagreements and I'm not abrasive particularly. <laughs> you, I mean, you see very even to me. Yeah. Yeah. So one-on-one, I was never ostracized really, but I was told by a lot of my friends that behind my back, people talked shit about me. So I, I have to trust that that happened, that I was fairly well known as far as these things go on campus for being the black guy with the wrong opinions. So I'm told that that was true. You know, what, what I actually experienced though, aside from the occasional stuff, like, uh, I once matched with a girl on Tinder and it was like going very well in the chat. It was in fact going so well that she was, she was a fan of uh, a jazz band that I play in called the Mingus big band. She was like, that's pretty good. It came up that she loved this band. And I was like, I'm in that band. So I was like, wow, that's, that's the best beginning of a Tinder conversation I've ever had. And then she was like, what else do you do? And I was like, oh, well, I write. And she looked up my articles for Quillette and she was like, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't go on a date with somebody that thinks racism doesn't exist. It's like, what? Of course, I don't think racism doesn't exist. Are you? Did you read my articles? They were, anyway. So aside from the occasional thing like that, most of what I experienced was people coming up to me privately and being like, kind of agree with you. Like, things are kind of nuts around here. We can't talk about anything. But like, they wouldn't publicly like my articles on Facebook or, or anything like that. But privately, they would they would often agree with me. Well, everything I've seen of yours, and I, I haven't read everything you've produced, but everything I've seen of yours just seems very lucid and reasonable. And if someone mm-hmm. has an issue with it, then, you know, they, they, they should try and dig in and be like, well, okay, here's uh, what I, I disagree with. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like that's the tenor of things where instead there is kind of this uh, more uh, visceral emotional uh, response that, that unfortunately in my mind doesn't necessarily lead to uh, give and take. <laughs> no, no, it does not. But that that emerges when people are in groups. People act crazy when they're in groups. One-on-one, I I can honestly say I've almost never had a really bad conversation with someone one-on-one. Even if there's one or if, if there's four people in a room, you can feel it change because now people are watching, right? And and a whole different mental machinery comes on board when you feel like your reputation hangs in the balance, right? That's when you get this, this like your evil kind of thing that well, people so fall profound into. Because there, there's like this sense that people don't actually feel something, um, but then they have to act like they feel that when mm-hmm. someone else is there observing them. Right. I mean, and, and it's like we all know what happens at, for instance, congressional hearings where every Congress, every Congress person is trying to get their 15 seconds of something to get them on cable news. It's like they don't actually care about the FBI guy they're grilling. They're thinking about it from their perspective, thinking I'm trying to build my political brand. I need to get some media time. I need to say something that's going to get me 15 seconds of play on Fox, on MSNBC, et cetera, right? There's a a microcosm of that, a little version of that whenever people are watching, right? It's like we're all sort of politicians and sort of brands in in a smaller way. And when we feel like our our reputation is at stake, that if 
if we lose this argument, our status is going to go down in the group. We act very differently than when it's one-on-one and nothing is at stake other than, you know, actually communicating with the person in front of us. Yeah, I, I certainly had that experience. I mean, I've met with thousands of Americans individually, and 99.9% of them are very yeah. reasonable yeah. and cordial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also interacted with thousands of people on social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the ultimate case where it's just like pure bullshit almost 100% of the time. It yeah. is funny because people like you and I, you know, we utilize social media because we're yeah. trying to reach people. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then also you see the... Um, the drawbacks of it, and you're like, wow, there, there's so much. So, but, but you can so you can see the dynamic in social media too, because I mean, I without even I don't know if your DMs are open on Twitter. Yes, they are. They are, yeah, as as are mine, and I read them. I I, I don't have time to respond. I to confess most of them. I don't read. All okay, that's fine. <laughs> but if you ever have, you'll notice they're way higher quality, and way more interesting, and way nicer than the replies, in general. Because, again, nobody's watching. That's a conversation between two people. So the the temperature of it is way cooler than the public stuff. This is a beef I have, too. It's like there, there are people on Twitter who say things sometimes that I know. And it's like, you just DM me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's right. Like, you know, we know each other. Yeah. You know, you just, uh, well, it's that. kind of, it's for public consumption, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, so that's one thing that I pride myself on not doing mm-hmm. is like I, I don't, I, I generally don't engage in these like uh, social media conversations that have that performative feel. Where right. I'm like uh, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to chime in on something that I sense you agree with, and mm-hmm. I'll, you know, people will like me more. It's like I'm saying, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> skip that. The, the other strange thing, and I bet you've had this experience too, is that you see stuff being said about people that you actually know or kind of know and mm-hmm. you're just like oh like that's not like, yeah that's not right that's not cool yeah um because to most other people that person's just like some avatar that some some you know someone in the press like has an axe to grind with mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're it's like either a real person. person yeah yeah if you know the real person the thing about it also is like it, it's tempting to just completely turn it off or go away but one of the things i find is that for every 10 or 100 really dumb or or just nasty, petty comments people make, one person will post a link to something, to a study, to an article that is really, really interesting. And I don't want to miss out on that one in 100 because it, it happens pretty reliably. So Coleman I f- Hughes learns on social media. I swear to God, I, I, there's... I probably, there's probably in the past month, two or three really interesting studies that I would not have found out if not for the crowdsourced one in a hundred wisdom of Joe Schmo on Twitter. So I, that's why I look at it. And, yeah, no, you know, I, I, I get it. I get yeah. insight too. Uh, people send me interesting stuff. People know what I'm about too. So they'll send me AI studies and yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like things around right um, polarization. Um, so you're graduating from Columbia, um, and you have a podcast at that point? At the time I graduated, I, I had recorded a couple episodes, but I hadn't released them yet. I hadn't developed, I didn't really have a podcast yet. Yeah, so then what, what did you think? Okay, what's my next step? Did, did, uh, wait, wait, I know. McKinsey Consulting. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know what was interesting about McKinsey? So what is it called when uh, you're basically auditioning to become a McKinsey consultant? There's uh, a word for it. They're like case interviews? Maybe, yeah. That sounds right. So when you're doing that, the, the culture at Columbia was, I don't even know what the word is, like, I would say phony, but the, cult, the, the, the culture at Columbia was such that a lot of kids that were doing that, doing the case auditioning thing, didn't want people to know they were doing it. They didn't want to be seen as a sellout that would do consulting. Interesting. So they would do it, but like tell their like one best friend and swear them to secrecy. Don't tell anyone I'm doing it. And it wasn't just because of fear of failure. Like they don't want people to know if they fail. That, that kind of would make sense. But it was that they didn't want to be seen as uncool. Interesting. Uh, so... Um, so what were your professional thoughts? After, because, you know, I, I'd imagine there's some pressure, obviously, to um, make some money on, on the way out. Yeah, so yeah, if I wanted, I would have liked to have had a podcast that made enough to pay rent at that time, but I didn't. Sure. Um, I would have wanted to be able to do that purely by writing, but but I didn't. So um, I, I ended up being a working at the Manhattan Institute the think tank for probably a year, starting the end of my senior year. What kind of work do you, you do there? I wrote for City Journal. I did their, you know, did a hosted a bunch of events, Zoom events at this point, because I, I graduated in 2020. So COVID hit two months before I graduated. So I did a bunch of Zoom events for them, um, hosted some of their podcasts, and wrote for City Journal. And Manhattan I had Institute gave me a, an award. In oh, yeah? 2015 or so. Mm-hmm. They had an event for me at their center. Oh, uh, right. It was for Starting Venture for America. Wow. Uh, cool. And then I, I said, um, my, I think my opening remarks of the speech were, when I first heard about this award, uh, my first question was, is there money involved? <laughs> and then when I heard the answer was yes, my second question was how much? <laughs> <laughs> money went to my organization. It wasn't like, a, it was a, like yeah. I won a prize and then they, they gave uh, Venture for America, $25,000, which I was grateful for. That's awesome. So, yeah, basically I, I worked for them until, I mean, the plan was always for me to be independent. That was always my plan. So I, I worked for them until my podcast was big enough that I didn't need to be aligned with any institution. I could be my own boss, which was always my goal. And so then I, I amicably left MI and... uh my podcast grew a lot during the pandemic. It's one of those weird things where everyone, so many people are suffering, but I'm in, I'm in the exact right industry to benefit from the fact that everyone's stuck at home, trying to make sense of, uh, you know, a, a world that is falling apart at the seams politically and in 2020 being ripped apart. And they have time, extra time to listen to podcasts. So it grew a lot to the point where I could, be independent, and and so I did. Uh, well, congratulations on that. So, uh, tell us about uh, the conversations you have that you think that people are, are seeking. I mean, I, I think there is an appetite for uh, reason and rationality, uh, for even temperedness, uh, modern day um, philosophy, if you will. I can't like I'm thinking about the philosophers I know mm-hmm. uh, in. 2022 and you know you could count them in my mind on one hand and you're one of them (laughs) (laughs) um so what do you think uh 
Uh, what are the big themes that, that you explore um, that are, are appealing to people? The basic theme I explored that was the source of me getting a following on Quillette, the, my, my podcast ballooning in success during 2020, was that I really think your race and your skin color should not matter in 99% of cases. I think it doesn't matter. It's, it's superficial. And what matters is our common humanity. And the... So, so uh, uh, the re- response to, for a lot of people, I think, mm-hmm. which you've probably heard a million times, mm-hmm. is, well, I certainly would want it to be that way, uh, but is it that way, question mark? And then people would be like, no, so we have to do X, Y. If your reply to race doesn't matter is... Well, the racists disagree, you're kind of proving my point, which is the people who make race matter, the people to whom race is important are wrong. So we shouldn't fight them by agreeing with their basic premise. We should fight them by rejecting their premise. And too many people have decided the right way to fight racism is essentially to agree about the underlying racial racial essentialism. Blackness and whiteness are really real things. They're really very important. They're core parts of my identity. You can't really understand me unless you understand my how the color of my skin is an intrinsic feature of who I am, a deep feature of who I am that separates and divides us such that you can't really, there's some incommunicable barrier between us um, and we should organize our politics around these variables. Um, People have decided that that's the only way or the best way to respond to white supremacy and and racism and the the alt-right and so forth. And, you know, I I reject that. I reject that approach. I I believe that, you know, what is, I guess what used to be called colorblindness is really the the only philosophically sound approach to have towards race, and I and I don't mean pretending not to see race, right? Like there's the uh, I'm clearly Asian. Yes, you're clearly Asian. <laughs> I'm clearly not. Is it the comedian Dove Davidoff has this joke where he's like, uh, I met this woman the other day who said she doesn't see race, and I thought, good luck describing your attacker. It's like rough. just tell tell the police to look for a man with a frown. It was like the point is obviously everyone sees race, right? So that pat phrase "I don't see race" is false and misleading. But what people the the charitable interpretation of that is I strive to be a person that does not let race influence my considered decisions. And that's the world that I want to create. I want to create a world where, where people think about race less and less and less. And, and the people who do obsess about race are more and more ostracized from the mainstream corridors of power. Well, this is a very uh, interesting counter to racism. Um, the tagline for my presidential campaign was humanity first. So you, yeah. you can imagine, uh, you know, like this is the world that I want, mm-hmm. the world where where folks uh, don't use race as a uh, like a factor in you know the way they treat people, the way they mm-hmm. respond to um, to situations. Um, 
so you've heard all of the counter arguments, I'm sure, and like I don't want to oh, yeah. be the person who like you know belabors them. Since no, yeah, I mean I'm <laughs> currently writing a book where I examine every counter argument that's that's out there. It's uh, so uh, my perspective on this is a a little different than yours, though. Again, I think we're aligned. Um, so I grew up in a majority white suburb, mm-hmm. um, and in upstate New York. Uh, probably not as diverse as Montclair. It's one of the only Asian kids. Uh, and so, like, I got picked on for being different. Uh, pretty much anyone who wasn't a white kid got picked on for, for being different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that the culture has shifted in ways where I, like, look at my boys. I'm a dad now. I've got two little Asian boys, nine, nine and six. And I look at them. I'm like, oh, like, are they going to experience the same sort of thing? Um, and right now it doesn't seem like it, <laughs> you know, at least maybe not in the same way, mm-hmm. certainly that my brother and I did. Um, uh, and so my, my feeling on this is that like that tribalism exists sort of baked into mm-hmm. human nature. Yeah. Um, and our goal should be to your point, one, except that a certain level of tribalism exists. Don't pretend that, you know, you look at someone and be like, oh, like, you know, I don't see that you're like a different race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you try and counter the corrosive uh, evil effects of that tribalism in different ways. And mm-hmm. I agree with you that the appeal to universalism is a better working appeal than 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 uh, than uh, you know reinforcing tribalism mm-hmm. in different respects. Um, so I think everything I said I doesn't disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, so, some level of tribalism is inevitable, and n- not only that, there are. I would even concede that there are certain times where tribalism is a, a, a good thing or it's it's the really the only way to get people to go so far above and beyond to help their fellow man. So like realistically, there there have been times where, you know, Jews were fleeing persecution in, in one part of the world and they could find refuge with Jews that were total strangers to them in a different part of the world that would take them into their homes, right? And that's a kind of altruism that is tough to get people to do absent tribalism, actually. It's like they they accepted Jews from a totally different part of the world just because they were part of the tribe. And that, so so I would even carve out some un, some unique instances where tribalism is the only plausible way of getting people to just be super altruistic to, to people whom would other, who would otherwise be total strangers. But in most cases, tribalism divides far more than it brings people together. And it creates all of these inevitable resentments when you put race into policy, right? Like when, when Biden puts into his uh, restaurant relief COVID policy that he's going to put to the front of the line people, restaurants that are owned by people of color, um, regardless of the need, the individual needs of, of sort of the, the struggling restaurants, that creates an understandable resentment in a white restaurant owner who's struggling, who knows all the specifics of situation, how hard he or she is working, um, may even em- employ mostly people of color. You know, like I know examples like this and it's like, I'm being put at the back of this line uh, on something that is really, it's well-meaning, but it's, it's harming me for, some, for a reason that I can't control. 
at the end of the day, I don't think you can ever ask people to to pay for arbitrary characteristics that they were born into. It will always create resentment no matter how you justify it. So we have to get to some equilibrium where we can seriously focus on, you know, intergenerational poverty, na- neighborhoods that are stuck in intergenerational poverty with high, high crime rates, um, and invest heavily in that as, as an independent problem, but really create and foster a, a colorblind general legal and political foundation. When I think about racism, I think about the fact that uh, economic opportunity and educational opportunity are vastly uneven. I think um, uh, the average black house household has something like 10% the net worth of the average white household. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think of it more in terms of uh, the economic disparities and the realities than I do like the, the like the way individuals treat each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was with a black person uh, when I was running for president, and that person was like, "Look, I don't care if like everyone loves me. I just want right. my schools to be better, or, or, or whatever it is." Uh, right. I mean that that was that was really the attitude of. I mean, the attitude of the, all all the great civil rights leaders we look back on and admire, like Dr. King and Bayard Rustin, and they all. I mean, as compelling as 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 Martin Luther King was in terms of actually getting white Americans that were on the fence to support the civil rights movement and to want to bring black people into the into the fully into the American fold. They were not at the end of the day focused on getting all white people to like like them. Right. Like they they understood they had a very hard headed approach that you don't have to like me, but you do have to. Yeah, you do have to let me be free. Right. You have to let me participate. I want you to change this and change that. Like, you know, how how you feel about me. Right. Afterwards. (laughs) Right. Is is less relevant. Yes. So, I mean, the the truth is there's always going to be bigots in the world. Always. And there's and, you know, over time, I think the amount of bigots has actually reduced somewhat as ideas have changed, as people have um, met people from different races and ethnic groups meet each other and mingle and. But it's never going to go away, ever. It's like, and and people have a totally, I th- implicitly they have an unrealistic attitude to this, which is like, for instance, no one expects the murder rate to ever be zero, even in like these Western European countries that we look to that have far less violence than we do, and are more homogeneous than we are. Yeah, and are more homogeneous than we are, and have very different circumstances. But even there. No one expects to have a, a murder rate of literal zero, right? Like there's always going to be a, a guy that finds out his wife has been cheating and like murders the other guy. And you can't fully prevent it, nor do we have that benchmark, like a literal zero benchmark for success. And bigotry is the same way. You can never, you can't fully purify human, the human mind, right? Uh, so I spoke to... Uh couple of people. I'm going to call on one. Barbara Walter wrote a book, How Civil Wars Start. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is concerned about American uh, political integrity. Uh, and she has studied dozens, hundreds of societies around the world in terms of uh, like why civil wars got going. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she found that uh, the one of the single biggest factors is uh, what's called a superfaction. Um, and superfactions combine race uh, with either geography or religion into a faction that just does not shift, uh, is more likely to instigate conflict when it feels its status is threatened. Mm. So she compares Donald Trump to an ethnic entrepreneur like uh, Milosevic uh, mm-hmm. in, in Yugoslavia type figure, and that the potential is that the Republican Party slash uh, um, you know, certain uh, category of, uh, uh, of American ends up becoming the super faction um, and leads to, to conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I hear you saying is like, look, um, there, there, and this is, I'll, I, sh- I won't put words in your mouth. I'll share my own perspective. So, um, so I, I think that she's generally correct. I mean, you can't dispute her, you know, political science findings. I mean, mm-hmm. She's gone around the world and said like, Hey, here are things. Um, uh, and uh, there, there's like this, feeling uh, of aggrievement among uh, some Americans that they're, they're losing uh, their place. Um, I've traveled the Midwest and the South. Have you been around the country that way? Not nearly as much as you have, but... Well, not most yeah, people. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I've been to... spend some time in Florida, some time in the Carolinas, um, but not nearly as much as you have, for sure. There, There is a lot of uh, dislocation and suffering going mm-hmm. on in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think one of the problems we face is that if you're like a rural farmer in Iowa or whatnot, um, right now uh, your concerns um, are kind of getting blended into this uh, this racialized discussion where it's like, oh, you're like a, you know, like you're still in the privileged class because right. you're, you know. Like a white dude, right? Um, hanging out in, in in the sticks, and and so then then there's a, a little bit of like, well, you know, like things aren't going so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that there are, there are areas in the country where things are really not going very well. Yeah. Um. Uh, and I I saw Trump as kind of a like uh, either like a combination of like a like scream of anger and cry for help. Mm-hmm. Um. And. Uh, I th- one of the things I hear you saying is like, look, like th- there are ways that we can try and address problems that affect everyone um, and that we don't necessarily – that if we kind of separate into tribes, then it's going to lead to worse things, not better things. Yeah. Yes. I mean t- totally. I think – so that makes me think of a few things. One is there is you're, – you're totally right to point out the huge economic gap between – white people and, and black people in terms of wealth, like that's a, that's a, that's a real power difference on the economic front, but there also is such a thing as cultural power, right? And the cultural power of lots of institutions and the democratic party is disproportionately wielded, I would argue by people of color. And you can, so, so the, there's one of the things Ezra Klein has said that I really agree with is that Everyone has reason to feel like a victim in certain domains, which is black people can point to we have one-tenth the wealth of white people, which means less of an ability to sort of throw throw our weight around and lobby and, and all of the byproducts of wealth. I mean, white people can point to, uh, you know, having less cultural power, 
which obviously some people would disagree with, but I would really make the case is true. I'm just going to interject something. Yeah. Um, you could throw Asians. <laughs> so, so like Asian Americans and I'm one. Um, like the conversations uh, are like, hey, uh, you know, we have a degree of like educational economic attainment, mm -hmm. but like culturally we're absent. So right. I just want to that you could use that as like a clear one, right? Um, in a way that you know whites and uh, probably be tough to tougher to argue in my view, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, and and there's I think white people are detecting, especially white Republicans are detecting a clear signal of contempt from the cultural left and unfortunately from parts of the Democratic Party as well. So, for instance, um, Governor Kathy Hochul, around New Year's when the COVID antivirals were coming out, they, the De New York Department of Health released a document advising doctors how to prescribe the new limited co COVID antivirals that were in scarce supply and high demand. And the, the racial aspect of that guideline was essentially that you, you, so you give it to anyone with a comorbidity first, only people with comorbidities Reasonable. Had, had priorities, but one of the comorbidities listed as a comorbidity was to be anything other than white, right? To be black, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, right? If it were, if it were just that, for instance, black people historically oppressed and marginalized group were prioritized, then the signal, signal you might be getting is, okay, Democrats have a special concern for black Americans based on history. We can argue about that. Well, but well, the, the, but so that the, wasn't what it was. Like the, the signal you're getting is, the signal you're getting is fuck white people, right? Like they're putting Asians before you. They're putting which are you know well, so so well, this, this that's the thing, the, that that's the thing you're hearing from the, the thing that Democratic aggravates Party. me is that like if you're so that this goes back to like a, you know an argument it's like look I think it was Cornell West who said you know we've tried putting black faces in high places and like things don't don't change it's like mm -hmm. you talk about like Democratic Party you know being like oh we have a special concern for black people it's like well then why are the situation's not improving in the mm -hmm. way that, 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 that you'd hope. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, I, so I agree with you that there is certain messaging coming out that like certain uh, white Americans look at and be like, you know, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's like a whole layer of white Americans who just kind of like, you know, uh, I guess resign themselves to it and aren't like up in arms. But then, mm -hmm. but then I think some of them will quietly end up voting in particular ways um, I think you, you you saw this with um, some of the issues around schools. Uh, you know, it's like that that there were, there were certain messaging that came out, and then like parents weren't uh, weren't very excited about some of the things that were happening. You're not a parent yet, yeah, Colin, but <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll get to this point. Yeah, yeah, I, I will be one day. Um, I'm sure you will. Um, so, so you made a, a case around um, uh, around trying to. Transcend race, would that be a fair way to describe it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there are people that have been very attracted to your um, your thinking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and um, and then you recently came out with, like, freaking music videos, yes. which is like you're coming back to some of your original yeah. passions. Mm -hmm. How the heck did that come about? I have to say, and uh, if you haven't seen it, we'll probably put a link in, but uh, I think, uh, you know, like, videos are very, very well done. Like, I was... 
you know, not not to say I mean like you I, were surprised. <laughs> you thought surprised. it was going to be <laughs> whack, and it wasn't. And, Everyone thought it was going to be whack. So, yeah, so continue. Everyone's like, oh, he's a writer. He wants to rap. Blah blah blah. It's probably going to be cringy. There's some danger signs in there. I confess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all the signs would have pointed to that, except for the fact that I'm a really good rapper and producer, and I've I've made really good videos. So, <laughs> well, I don't I mean, know. So, so, I mean, I, I can like that. That is true. Yeah, check it out. It's very, very good. So the first one's called Blasphemy. Came out in January. The second one's called Straight A's and came out uh, February or March. And um, yeah, I guess Blasphemy. I made that song like a year and a half ago. And the background to all of this was when I was like seventeen. I started really getting into hip hop. I had been into hip hop as a kid, but being into jazz kind of took all of my focus as as a teenager. But by the time I got really got into hip hop, 17, 18, and started rapping, I had all of those skills. I could play piano. I could play drums. I could produce very well. So I make all my own beats. I mix all my own music. And so I started doing that and kind of took a break from it when I started writing and podcasting. But came back to it and wanted to find a way, like, how do I in- integrate this? People now know me as this guy that talks about serious stuff and has a philosophy podcast and talks about blah, blah, blah. How can I just, like, break back into my rap persona? Which I, I used to do rap shows all over the what city when I was, name? like, 18. Cold Man. Cold Man. You brought back Cold Man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wrote this song, Blasphemy, and... It dealt with a lot of themes that I've written about and and and, and spoken about, which is um, like, can we have honest conversations without good faith conversations without fear of cancellation? Essentially, um, people are terrified to talk in, in a lot of contexts, and it it doesn't take that many cancellations in order to create a culture of fear. So. That was kind of the driving impetus beside, but behind the song. And um, I, I got together with this guy, Ian Ponch Jewel, who had he'd done a video for Vince Staples and had actually done a video for Kanye, which, which unfortunately never got released. But we, we got together and we made the video. We filmed it out in Ukraine, in Kiev, actually. Wow. Um, about a year ago. Um, which we had no reason to believe was was like unsafe then and, and was not unsafe then. Uh, and yeah, and we filmed this video of like 100 extras and people have received it really well. So that sounds expensive. <laughs> it would have been if uh, if Ian didn't have as many favors to call upon as, as he did. Um, well, uh, you're a very impressive musician. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like I, I I was deeply impressed. I'm not as multi-talented as you. Uh, in, in yeah. <laughs> How much did you sell your business for before you ran for president? Oh, you yeah. know, wow. I'm sure that number is buried in a public file somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're such like a, uh, an uncommon figure, um, you know, a bit of a polymath. You can write rap. Um, so, uh, you have a book coming out. Like what are the projects that you're most excited about? Yeah, I'm finishing my book this year, hopefully, which it deals with all the subjects we've been talking about here and that will come out 
probably next year. Probably, uh, what is it now? 2022? Two, yeah. Yeah, no, so it'll come out 2023. Track. And I my podcast, Conversations with Coleman, I release every week. And um, and then I got my music. I'm, I'm Hopefully I'm going to release an album this year. Wow, a full album? Mm-hmm. And then would there be a tour? Quite possibly, yeah. We're trying to figure that out now. Well, sky's the limit for you. I mean, it, it's incredible that you made a name for yourself at such an early point. And you have a point of view that I think uh, a lot of Americans uh, would be interested in. So I, I, I do want to try and hit on a couple of, of themes for um, for a moment. So it seems like you traffic largely in um, the way ideas are uh, communicated. Are there policies that you... Uh, advocate that you think would help everyone and like what I'm reminded of was like I had a conversation with John McWhorter Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I I would dare say that you and John uh, you know see certain things totally yeah he's like my uh, I think he's called me his intellectual son before which I that was a high compliment I I, uh, which I love so John, John makes the argument, he's like, look, you know, we want to help black people. Here are some things you could do, like mm-hmm. end the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like a few things he's like that that would would be helpful to, for black people and not what he sees as kind of like the um, the focus on uh, like signaling and yeah. manners and the rest of it. Are yeah. there things where you're like, look, you want to help black people? Here's what you would, would do. Yeah, so I mean, I agree with all of his prescriptions. Um, so ending the war on drugs was... One, um, there was one which, which, as a linguist, he he suggested a certain way of teaching reading that is empirically much more effective, um, which is the, the phonics method of learning reading, which he thinks would would boost basically you know early black literacy, and um, I can't remember his his third suggestion, but I mean some of the other things that I think. So I have some ideas about what would be effective ways to combat racism, right? Which I, which I think are rarely talked about. So, I mean, for instance, I know Chicago has done this, but having, uh, you know, traffic, uh, having, uh, you know, tickets, automated tickets with traffic cameras, just reduce right. cop interactions. Reduce cop interactions. Cops can focus on doing more important stuff. If you get a ticket, you know it wasn't racial profiling because cameras don't care what you look like. Um, I mean, this, it seems like a pretty clear win-win in most cases, although it's gotten some pushback. Um, I mean, that that's one example of a policy I think would make sense to widely implement in cities. And I'm kind of surprised that there was very little discussion of it when we were all talking about police brutality and so forth. I'm going to put you on the spot, you know, but, you know, uh, did you have a feeling about universal basic income when I was campaigning on it? Because that, that was my, that, yeah. that's my way of, uh, you know, to me, uh, it would help those uh, with the least the most. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of had mixed feelings about it. It was, ironically, it was like the, the one policy recommendation of yours that I had mixed feelings you about. struggled with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was your main one, but like everything else I was, there's just been too many times in my life where I thought an economic policy was a really good idea. And then a smart economist gave me a reason why it wasn't that my, my general confidence in, in 
economic specific e- economic policies has gone down. Like my general confidence in my beliefs about what is good for the economy is low. So it's it's not actually a UBI specific criticism. It's a general skepticism that I have in my ability to correctly discern to diagnose and prescribe this yeah the second and third and fourth and fifth order consequences of any economic policy yeah i i, I hear that, that sounds good yeah. to, to my ear you know it, it's i mean one of the things that scares me man it's like i i can see the way things are trending uh where and you know i was running for president on this it's mm-hmm. like th- things are getting more and more dystopian and, and when i did speak to black groups uh you know i talked to uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, I talked to uh, National Action Network, I talked to a lot of black groups uh, mm-hmm. over the last number of years. Mm-hmm. And I would say to them, it's like, look, there's an economic hurricane coming. Mm-hmm. And you know who gets hurt worse than a hurricane? Mm-hmm. Poor people yep. uh, and people of color because yep. they don't have shelter, they can't get to higher ground. Right. So that this buzzsaw that's coming, it's going to, like, there's a study I saw that said that uh, black net worth in America will be negative uh, by you know, like, I think it was like 2040 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there, there's, this is my frustration is like, there's this notion. It's like, Oh, things are getting better. Like, you know, black people are coming up like, and then, and then, you know, white people, you know, like there's an argument and there's some truth to this too. Like white people are coming down because you can see things like life expectancy going down, like, mm-hmm. you know, deaths of despair going up. And, mm-hmm. and so then, and then this goes back to Barbara Walters thing. It's like, you know, white people feeling like they're going down, um, and uh, they're going to uh, respond like extraordinarily negatively, maybe right. maybe even violently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cultural power you talk about is always like, oh, you know, like people of color and uh, and uh, marginalized groups are like coming up. And then I'm like, wait a minute, like there's this freaking AI buzzsaw that's going to come, and like you know, like black net worth is going to be getting down, not up. Like mm-hmm. like white net worth is going to diverge sharply depending upon where you live. In certain places, it's just, you know, there's going to be disintegration and deterioration. In other pockets, it's going to, uh, it's going to head up. Um, so anyway, that, that, that this is one of the things that I've been struggling with uh, a bit is that even when I was on, uh, you know, Bill Maher the other day or week, um, where it's like, like, so by virtue of the fact I ran for president, by virtue of the fact you, you know, are a philosopher and, mm-hmm. and a musician and everything else, like we're cultural figures and, mm-hmm. and so we end up arguing in cultural parlance mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like a, and and uh and so there's a sense that there's this black cultural power which certainly from certain perspectives you're like and and you know when i talk to like my asian friends uh, they, 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 <laughs> they would totally agree with this like yeah. black cultural power is like up here right um and then i had this notion when i was running it's like look there's like this underlying reality you know there are people who are of communities who have like certain um, prominence or visibility or the rest of it, but like the the reality is, uh, is that like there is an economic hurricane coming. It's you know like it's going to affect everyone. Um, and so my argument for UBI was like we have to try and find different ways for people to have a path forward, mm-hmm. uh, or else it's just going to end up um, uh, in like turning us against each other, yeah. and deteriorating in different ways. I really agreed with your diagnosis of. The problem, like the problem of deindustrialization, of of sending all our factories overseas, you know that that's been described as sort of hitting 
white America very hard, but it also hit black America. There were a lot very of freaking hard. black manufacturing workers yes. in Detroit and yes. all these other places. And all of these places, all of these uh, you know, black cities, sort of formerly great Baltimore. places that hollowed out. Yeah. You know, that that had a huge effect on 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 black America. New Jersey. And, yeah, totally. So I mean that that the deaths of despair, the stagnant wages that whole, you know, the the returns to the top 1% just, you know, Going up and up, climbing up. like crazy. And even during COVID, like how much the the top 10, like wealthiest people profited during COVID as as so many people suffered. Um, and, you know, in, in a weird way, the, the Biden bucks almost seemed like a mini trial of of your idea. Um although it was in a time of crisis, but so like, I, I have no, uh, it, it, we clearly need something like we need, we need something that levels the playing field a little bit and provides uh, a wider safety net to, to people in general um, as, as the economy moves forward. You know, I, I don't know exactly to what extent the, the AI apocalypse is coming, I know in some ways it's already come a little bit to, to certain sectors. I know that any job that requires narrow intelligence, like, you know, like chess engine type narrow intelligence, we're going to be destroyed by AI if we haven't already. But I'm not, I'm not totally convinced by the AI apocalypse that we're going to get general intelligence where it's going to be cheaper to build a robot that does like a wide array of like sort of commonsensical tasks. It's going to be cheaper to have a robot do that than a human. I mean, one of the tough things that's happening too now, man, and you and I feel it. I mean, we're in New York. Is that I don't think office culture is coming back the way. Yeah, that that it was. It's uh, interesting because it, it's one of those things where people just didn't realize they could do certain things from home until they were forced to, and now a lot of people prefer it. A lot of, I mean, I, I've seen some polling and some numbers, you know, the, yeah. the vast majority of people want to work from home. Mm. Um, the, the tough part, too, is I think that people who are uh, served the worst by this are young people. Mm. Because when you're a young person, you come in and you can build trust in organization. You kind of like absorb an office culture and the rest of it. Not people like you. I mean, you're going to be a solo creative and end up, uh, you know, like a rap star philosopher. It's kind of awesome. But... <laughs> But, um, but in like for the the average worker trying to um, build those chops, maybe become a manager and leader themselves, mm-hmm. I think it's much much harder virtually. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a little further along in your career, like me, and you have a family, then you're like, you know, <laughs> like, right. yeah, sure, beam me in. Right. Um, so I think it's young people that get served the worst by the shift. Uh, you know, the other people that get served the worst are the people that. Uh, used to have jobs based upon folks showing up to the office. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's. Security, cleaning, street vendors, mm-hmm. retail, uh, you know, restaurants and bars, like you name it. Yeah. Um, so that there, there are these things like that that are happening now that, you know, you don't think of that as like part of the AI apocalypse, but it kind of is because, you know, it's like. Just I also wonder work. if it's part of the, if it may have bad mental health ramifications because, I mean, as annoying as it can be to come into work every day. Dude, it, it like keeps it's, you on the straight and narrow. It keeps you on the straight and narrow. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Like it, I do think there is, um, like people need structure. Yeah, 
I think that people totally need structure and often they even need it when they need it like they need to take their medicine and eat their broccoli. Like, and when it, when you get, when, when it gets taken away, sometimes you don't realize how important a a purpose it was serving for you. Right. Even though it's annoying and it's like, you got to wake up early and all that stuff gives you structure in a way that's really healthy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you ask my kids, like, hey, do you want to go to school? They'll be no. like, no. Hell no. And every time there's a here's, – here's the thing. The paradox about it is every time there's a snow day, it's like the happiest day, right? And if, if, you're, if you're not from a place where, with snow days, you know. Whatever. Like if you're, you're missing fr- out. You're missing out. <laughs> but it's like we would uh, – as a kid, we would superstitiously flush our toilets at 8 p.m. the night before snow. We had all these traditions to try to bring the snow day, like a rain – like a rain dance or something, you know? And it's like the happiest day. So you extrapolate, you think, well, if I had no, every time I, I get a break from structure, I'm incredibly happy all day. So if I just got rid of the structure, I'd be incredibly happy all the time. It's like, no, that's not how it works. It's only fun because you have the structure every day, right? A vacation means nothing if it's like, if your whole life is kind of like a vacation. Um, not, which is not to say that's what working from home is like. But it is to say actually having to get up and physically go to a place is a very different psychological dynamic than having some Zoom calls. I used to be an office culture guy. You know, some people would judge me on that. <laughs> when I say that, I mean, so a couple of experiences. One, I worked from home in my mid-20s trying to start a company. I hated it. Company never got off the ground. I was like, I can't do that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was running companies because I was like, you know, the CEO – and I, I believe I was like, you know, a fairly benign um, leader and manager. I wasn't <laughs> like a, you know, a jackass. Um, but I, I thought that having people together enabled us to just collaborate and communicate and build relationships in a different way and mm-hmm. like establish what I, I hoped was like a positive team culture. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, like like that that was my jam at the time. Like we built like... Uh, and these organizations too, I was younger then. So it was like a bunch of young people together Mm -hmm. in an office being like, yeah, we're going to do it. It's going to be great. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, or organizations did, um, we achieved like unlikely things. Now was the office part of it? Like I thought it was, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, this is so like for, for instance, when COVID hit and we were all quarantining stand up comics, tried to do Zoom comedy, and it sucked. It's like you had the best, some of the best comics in the world trying to make people laugh you know, on Zoom. I've noticed you interview a lot of comics. Do you have like a... I had Jeffrey Maurer. Oh, yeah. Do you have like a, an affinity for comedians? I do have an affinity for comedians. I, I hang out a lot at the Comedy Cellar, and I become friends with some of the comics there. Um, have you gone on stage, done a tight five? Any of that <laughs> I've done like uh, three or four open mics, done like five minutes at open mics, but not in maybe like a year ago I was doing that. So that's not going to become part of no, the no, cold no, man? No, no. no. I, I'm not passionate enough about it to work hard at it. Would, you know, like to get good at that, you got to put in your Malcolm Gladwell hours, you know, your 10,000. And to do that, you have to intrinsically hunger to do it like and I don't have that hunger for it um otherwise I would because I I love comedy um 
but yeah, like, you know, they tried to do that stuff on Zoom and it's like, it turns out, it doesn't really matter how funny you are. It's hard to be funny over Zoom. Like, it's not the same. You know, I, I uh, saw Dave Chappelle during um, COVID and he had the opposite take of the Zoom thing, which was like, I'm going to get together people in real life in a cornfield in Ohio and we're going to do this thing. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, in real life. Yeah, we're going to separate the mass, yeah. test everyone. Yeah, and they did it. Yeah, and they, yeah. And they, they did it. That was such an oasis. Um, it's hard to believe that. that did, were was, you at that? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because Chappelle supported your campaign. He did his shows to support you, right? Yeah. 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 And so then I, I went out to Ohio during um, during those shows. I actually make a tiny, tiny cameo in his uh, documentary about those shows. Mm. Um, proof. I was there. I've got like a, you know, Chappelle, Camp Chappelle t-shirt to prove it too. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So, but he took the other way. He was like, you know, no way anyone's going to do this stuff yeah. remotely. Like, right. Like, get people together. And right. Life. Yeah, I've seen Chappelle twice in the past three months. I've seen, I saw him do a show at The Cellar and a show at The Stand. It was great. That's fun. Uh, did really you meet good. him? Does he know you? Do you I, I said hi to him, like, hi, I'm Coleman. But no, not other than that. Uh, well, I think you'd enjoy aspects of uh, your, you know, music. You might, you know, I mean, I, I'm, maybe, yeah. I mean, I mean, seeing. I mean, he's a bit like, yeah. the, you know, I think he's got a different and a, a different take on some issues than you do, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, it's true of true of us all. Um, uh, you know that it, you're, it's it's interesting, man. I like as as I was sitting with you. So there, there's like a. I want to see, let's see I'm going to try and there's something that, that, that I, that's been weighing on me. Um, so uh, I think I can see why some people take issue with your approach, which as you can tell, I'm generally aligned with. Mm-hmm. So here's how I'm aligned with it. And here's how I probably differ from it. Um, so I'm aligned in the sense of like, look, we all see race. There is a certain amount of tribalism trying to go around saying like, we're going to like stamp out all elements of, Racism in everyone's um, minds and hearts and souls is like, well, that's not a realistic approach. To me, a realistic approach is to try and uh, alleviate some of the, you know, more evil, corrosive elements of of racism that you can see around us. Like, to me, like intergenerational poverty seems unnecessary. Like, maybe we can attack that. Like, you you know, certain things, though my preferred way of attacking things are by saying, like, look, let's alleviate poverty and then not focus on particular um you know, like divisions, because it turns out poverty affects just about everyone of every group. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so there there are things that, um, like, I, I'm pushing for that I think well, will help everyone, will help people who have uh, the least the most, which does overlap with certain groups and, like, certain groups of color. Um, and then there's, like, a positive version of identity politics that I think in some ways, like, Dave might embody, which is, like, Dave's, like, very, very... No, he does. I mean, he wouldn't use the word term identity politics. Like he's not for that. But <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's like like that. There's like a positive version. Um, like you know, it's like some of my friends who are very avowedly um, black, as an example. But mm-hmm. like they're but they're kind of, they're very elevating. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're not adversarial. They don't go in like you know uh, like. Um, uh, in an accusatory or negative way to other people and be like, you know, like, like they're just elevating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like this negative version um, where it is much more like uh, adversarial and contentious and in my view, like not as productive because mm-hmm. like if you're, you know, putting someone in a corner and they'll, like, they tend to come come back. 
um, at you. So, uh, you know, like I, I feel like there's like an elevating approach that certain leaders take that like I, I'm cool with. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have a bigger issue with some of like the, you know, the like the negative approaches that some people right. take. Um, and it seems like you're in a slightly different place where you're like, look, like uh, um, that uh, that there aren't really as positive uh, approaches mm-hmm. that like even as accepting the essentialism is kind of, um, you know, like already conceding too much. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's directionally true. I mean, like, like I said earlier, there, there are certain things I would acknowledge where tribalism leads people to uh, do good things that they, it's hard to do absent tribalism. But I, you know, I see, I mean, for every one of those, I feel like I see a hundred or a thousand examples of people invoking race or identity in ways that harm the conversation. Um, I mean, like even to, to take Dave, Dave as an, as, as an example, and I, I know he's, he's your friend, I love him. I think he's the greatest of all time. But the way he invoked race in his latest special where he was talking about trans issues, right? He was talking about trans. And the whole thing essentially became a competition between how much bigotry trans people have experienced and how much bigotry black people have experienced. And it became this oppression Olympics thing where Dave would essentially say, well, why aren't black people getting attention. How come trans people are getting so much attention for their bigotry? You, you like, we're the real victims. And that short circuited the conversation. Then it just becomes my identity versus yours. And I thought that, that he was sort of falling back on this. Well, I'm, I can't be a bigot against trans be, because I'm black, which logically is not necessarily true. And like, I, I don't think he is a bigot necessarily towards trans people, but the way that the race card was played in that conversation felt like to me a coarsening of the conversation. It felt like the conversation was worse precisely because he invoked him, his, his being black as a Trump card or as some kind of um, card to play in the conversation about trans. And, you know, that felt to me a, it's like it's it's such a tempting thing to do. Like when you have a card to play, to play it, especially when you're being accused and you know piled upon as Dave constantly is for for being one of the few people you know brave, brave enough to joke about a, a sacred cow like like trans issues right now. But it's just it almost always is a way of not having the most honest and common ground finding conversation. Have you, and I was, I was finding myself thinking, was that your, like your first public uh, opining on? <laughs> maybe on that special. On that special, I was just wondering mo- whether, you'd, maybe. whether you'd give it any. Uh, no, I haven't said that exact thing before ever. I was just curious. Yeah, um, yeah I saw Dave, Dave thereafter and, uh, you know, like Dave is very, very, um, um, like he's he's got the height of a rhinoceros. <laughs> so th- yeah. things like, you know, things that would affect other people. I'm happy to say, it's, you know, like kind of come and go where he's concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, just some, something I admire about him. Um, there's a lot I admire. I, I agree with you. He's the best of all time. 
And I would just say that because I know I, I was a huge fan of his beforehand. So yeah, I mean, the, he was the first comedian I loved. Really, yeah. So yeah. the fact that when I first met him and then he started he started supporting the presidential, I was like, well, this is the yeah, that must have, all, oh my god, you must have been over the moon. Time. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the presidential man, it was such like a freaking. I you know it's funny like someone said it to me the other day. It was like it was like type two enjoyment, which is like at the time was I enjoying myself? I mean, it was like mm-hmm. hard work. I was like grinding all the time. <laughs> type two enjoyment. Yeah, so type two enjoyment was like uh, you know like you, you look back on it after the fact, you'd be like, oh, that was yeah, really yeah, it. yeah. It's right, like at the right, time right. was I like enjoying myself day to day? I mean, right. I was like away from my family for weeks at a time, exhausted, like, like, uh, exhausted. The smiling I, muscles got tired. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was in Iowa so much, and I'll, I'll describe this like a, you know, it's just a mic. But this is what comes to my mind. Um, so Iowa's a spread out state. Mm-hmm. There's no way to travel it that's not by car. When, when you really upgraded at a certain point, you had a bus, so that was like the greatest, greatest thing of all time. But that was not for months. So the the punctuation mark when I was campaigning was rest stops. Was that um, that that. Uh, it would be like between events, we would stop at a gas station, mm-hmm. and those would be my moments of joy. <laughs> <laughs> we would stop oh, at a rest yeah. stop, and I'd be like, "I think I'll, I'll take type one enjoyment, thanks." <laughs> Does not sound that good. Yeah, so I'd be like, "Yay!" And then I'd go into the rest stop, and then I would buy something that I would like. Um, and it was tough because. I, you know, you just wanted to buy comfort food because you're like, you know, like, so, uh, but I didn't yeah. want to, you know. Type 2 enjoyment leads to type 2 diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, so I, I would try and split the difference. So I would get a lot of nuts mm-hmm. or popcorn where mm-hmm. I would say, like, this is not, you know, uh, potato chips. So, right. like, I'm, I'm in the clear. It was, like, snacky. Um, so those those would be, like, my... Um, my joyous interludes is like we stopped at the rest stop. I had two minutes to go in and buy like a, you know, like a green tea and pistachios or whatever. So I, I was saying to Zach before you got here, um, before we were recording that following you run for president and reading your book about it is, is like um, maybe the only, but certainly one of the only times that you feel like you are witnessing a normal person run for president. And you were in this golden zone where if you had succeeded if and actually become president, I think the version of the story we, we would have heard wouldn't have really been what it is. It, it wouldn't have felt that way because you reach this untouchable zone where it's like, image management now becomes a matter of like national security and it's more difficult to give a really raw, honest take until maybe 20 years after it's whatever. But if you have no chance to begin with, then it's not interesting. Then you're just a normal guy like with pipe dreams, but you were in this golden zone where you really had a, a a real chance. Oh, thank you. But you were also able to tell the story in a way that's like, this actually looks like what it would be for like a normal person to run for president. And and you never get to hear the story from that angle. It's it was so cool. Oh, thank you, man. You know? I, I tried to share it while it was happening because I was trying to, you know, compete and win. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad I documented it in the book when I did because uh it, it was relatively fresh, but I'd also blocked a lot of it out. Mm-hmm. Like I really, you know, my, my recollection of the, those months, is like very dim because I was such like this, 
focused instrument. Right. And but I, I agree with you. Like you know, like I was still myself, and it was relevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those two things were true. And you just you you get the sense that career politicians, and this is one reason Trump was successful. Career politicians have so altered their palette of emotions and responses. Um, and, and, and also this is why a show like Veep is hilarious to, to watch. Uh, Which, by the way, Veep is shockingly accurate. Yeah. Like to, to watch how she, <laughs> like the person she becomes as a result of being on stage all the time. It's like you almost can't have normal emotions, right? It's like you you're on stage so much of the time. It's just totally disorienting and makes you, and you discuss this in your book, it 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 really makes you uh, in some ways a worse person and it's all so, some of that's actually inevitable it's like it's it's actually wrong to blame them because it it's a necessary consequence of the job in some way i mean and and this is true for a lot of jobs i mean i think of sometimes people who work in hospitals people who do a bunch of surgeries it like it requires a sort of numbness to do the job well, you can't actually feel everything that happens to you. If you did, you'd go crazy. But the flip side of that is you develop this kind of coarseness and lack of empathy. Yeah, so I think this is the problem with with many professions like surgery, for instance. After you've done a thousand surgeries or after you've been working in an ER room for some length of time, well, there's no way you can actually feel what's happening in the room the way that I would feel it if I was on my first day in an ER, right? And that's actually a requirement of the job. It's yeah, like, you don't want that. You right? don't want that. You want you you need to acquire a certain numbness. Um, but on the flip side, and I think people have also experienced this in from doctors and in hospitals, once you have that numbness, it can lead you to do to to be much more cruel and dismissive of people's pain. Right. It's like it's a double edged sword because you need it in order to survive the job for any length of time to not quit out of pure distress and pain. But then it allows you to just be totally numb to people's pain for, for and do horrible things. And politics is like that. And we get that sense from um, from career politicians and so, you know, that's one reason it was really interesting to. I, I think you just summed up the one of the greatest problems in American life, my my friend, which is that we have these dynamics of success within marketplaces that in order to succeed in the vast, vast majority of them, you have to kind of become an automaton. Mm. You know, like I, I now know a ton of media figures. Most of them have a, a lot of the same things you're talking about as political figures where they yeah. become kind of. Uh, performers yeah. and automatons. Uh, you know, let's say, uh, and some of your buddies from Columbia will resemble this someday. It's like, let's say you're a successful financier. You also end up becoming kind of this like cold-blooded, calculating, mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, it's like a pandemic automaton. happens and it's not 10 seconds before you're thinking, oh, which stock should I invest in? Yeah. It's like you don't even, for one... You have no time to think about the people are, that that are going to die, and it's like okay. In one sense, it's like you're not going to be able to help them anyway. But is that the kind of person you want to become? So we, it's we, like there's a war in Ukraine. Okay, what which stock am I going to? Like we've turned up the market incentives to such a high degree mm-hmm. that now and just about everyone's subject to them. Um, and, and so 
in order to succeed, then you kind of remove certain aspects of humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and then, uh, that's like the, um, the progression. Um, you know, I certainly seen in politics, media, yes. Business, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the last bastions maybe of the opposite that I, I see it's like flailing around and dying is art. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, are there market incentives attached to art? Like, of course, yeah. you know, and then you, you, there are certain things that you do. I mean, one of the reasons why you're so interesting is that you're such an iconoclast. Like, you know, it's genuine. You're like, you know, you think you genuinely did arrive at what you think because mm-hmm. you think those those things. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and it is very much against the grain. Um, but that this this is what uh, my my core challenge is for us all right now. Uh, is that the market dynamics are going to get stronger and stronger, going to lead more and more people like in certain directions. Uh, and the market dynamics are also going to end up excluding like tons and tons of people, mm-hmm. most of whom I have been stunned by the fact that we had this enhanced child tax credit that helped like get millions of kids out of poverty and like help millions, millions of families, tens of millions of families. Um, and then they discontinued it in January. And then there, there's been not, like, some kind of, like, massive uh, furor. Mm. Like, you, you would think it's, like, tens of millions of parents, but, like, wait a minute, what? Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, what just happened? Yeah. Um, where, where there's, like, this mass of the voiceless um, that aren't successful within, like, the market mm-hmm. doctrines. And then, mm-hmm. like, turns out we don't pay attention to them. What? They, like, don't have massive followings. And, like, right. like our, our system is less and less responsive to, um, to people, um, and, uh, like the, the coarsening you're describing, this inhumanity, like, I, I think that's the core challenge. The question is how do we humanize? Um, I, I like the fact that you're trying to make universal cases. Um, you know, I think that could be a, a part of it. Uh, there was a point I'm older than you are, like you're in the seventies and eighties. Like there was like this coreness to like an American identity, maybe because there were only three TV channels. Mm-hmm. This is like, we all saw watch the same shit. So. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's like, someone asked me at that point, what being an American was, it's like, let's see, I eat hamburgers and hot dogs and pizza. And I watch like, you know, the, the, uh, same programs as everyone else. And, right. Uh, I guess that's it, you know, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. you know, as the child of immigrants, um, you know, like that was, Oh, the other things, what am I talking about? Got to play some sports, mm-hmm. follow some sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had I had a good deal of that culture growing up, but definitely not to the extent of, of probably your generation. Oh, yeah, for sure, because, um, you know, you had more channels than all. All more channels, shows. yeah. Well, you know, my parents didn't believe in cable, so until I was 11 years old, I think I only had public access channels and, like, zero through channel zero through PBS 13. I had no cable. Um, it's probably why you're so smart, my friend. Cable. The That's what my government. mom would have said. <laughs> Your mom, mom was an incredible person, and she'd be very, very proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one thing I just thought of is like, so this we're talking about this inauthenticity of politicians. Um, this is the reason why politicians can't apologize. It's like politicians... We, we know the apology is insincere because we know everything is insincere. That's why politicians get penalized when they apologize, right? Like normally if your friend, if your friend fucks up with you or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, and they give you, they give you a, like an apology that you can really see that they feel it, they feel guilty for what they said or did, that does something good with you, right? That 
your estimation of them goes up as opposed to if they just whatever. Double down. Yeah. If pol- When politicians apologize, no matter how sincere they try to be, it never works. It makes them look worse. And so they don't do it. And the politicians that never apologize, like Trump, are enormously su- successful. Whereas someone like Joe Rogan, when he apologizes, it actually makes your opinion of him go up as if he were your friend or someone you knew. That's the normal dynamic of human psychology. The politician dynamic is because we know it's all sincere on some level that we don't often acknowledge, the, the, the rules aren't the same. Apologies don't work. Um, and that, that's just one way where I see that come to light. Yeah. Uh, political culture, man, it's not going well. Uh, not enough, uh, <laughs> not enough humanity too much. Yeah. Uh, 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 and you see how much people crave authenticity, right? It's like, okay, Trump, he lied all the time. We all know it, but he was authentic in some way. Like he, he really said what was on the top of his mind. It was not scripted. And you knew it wasn't scripted because it might contradict what he said 10 minutes ago. It was not focus grouped. Um, Like he really felt authentic to people as opposed to someone like Hillary. And uh, the measure of how much people crave that is that they put up with a lot of, you know, a lot of Trump voters didn't like everything about him. You know, they didn't like that he... You know, they didn't like the porn star fiasco. They didn't, you know, they were, they were normal people in that sense. Like they were good, honest people. And, but they they craved, part of what they craved was just like a break from the constant phoniness of it all. And one thing I think I liked and many people liked about your campaign is that there was not even a hint of sneering at the Trump voter. Right. There was like, obviously there was Hillary Clinton. Her deplorables comment was the tip of an iceberg, which is sort of a feeling of all these people who voted for Trump are bigots. Right. Or, or in some way, morally members who voted for Trump. So, yeah. I know. Morally <laughs> defunct. But that, thank you. For but there that. was not even a hint of it with you. There was not even a suggestion like a Trump voter could listen to you and feel like you don't hate him at all. And and maybe I should vote for him. And maybe like you're, you know, you're actually the substance of whatever the concerns that led me to Trump were. You, you know, know? I, I was proud of the fact that 42 percent of my supporters said they weren't sure if they're going to support the Democratic nominee because they were independents or in some cases Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I don't I don't judge them, man. I mean, you know, it's just human beings like doing doing what they thought. Right. The right thing to do was. And I think this is this is a big lesson of people should internalize is that at the end of the day, people are not going to vote for you if they feel you are looking down on them. And it's, 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 um, it's not just a matter of not making a gaffe like Hillary made with deplorables. Like there are many other ways in which people feel like you're kind of giving them the finger. Like you're saying they're not such a great person or people like them are not such a great person. And if people feel that from you, left, right, center, doesn't matter. They will not, they don't care. Nothing else you say is ever going to matter. Now, thanks for noting that. I had a friend who had a devoted um, Trump-supporting mom who said that Yang is the only 
one I, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd consider on the other side because I just don't think he's judging me at all. Yep. And I, I don't judge that person. Uh, you know, if I have judgment about anything right now, it, it's the fact that, like, our system has gotten so uh, demented and that people, there are still so many people that are, like, accepting of certain things. And, like, the guys, this doesn't make sense anymore. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we got to try and um, get, you know, change things but yeah there's so much institutionalization baked in and dc is very institutionalized Mm -hmm. uh politics media i mean these are some of and you read my book so you have a sense of it yep um and even more than is even more than i thought i did learn some things about you know like the just like the habits of media the ingrained habits of media that are anti-change basically in principle yeah, and I learned it myself, man, up close and personal. Um, and and it was the book was my trying to process what the heck that I just gone through because, mm-hmm. like you said, it's like I, you know, I was like a I thought a fairly regular person who wrote, ran for president. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm grateful to people like you who gave me a shot and mm-hmm. you know gave me a look um, and in some cases supported me. Uh, Coleman, you are. Uh, uh, an incredible voice of the next generation. Um, I can't wait to see what you n- do next, and hopefully I'll be a part of it in some way. Like, I'd, I'd love to um, to be helpful if I can. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. No, appreciate the heck out of you coming yeah. in. Absolutely. Coleman Hughes. Yeah. Cold Man. Andrew Yang. <laughs> is it, it, it's, it is Cold Man, right? Yes. Because yes, 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 yes. <laughs> right. I thought yeah. there was an X in there, too. There is, but it's silent. That's what I needed to silent know. X. I was like, is it Cold That's Man what the true fans X know. Man? That's how you can tell a true Coldman fan if they don't say the X. Well, that that makes me a fan. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs>